She looked about six years old. This soaking wet, bedraggled girl that we pulled out of the sea. She was clutching an empty oxygen canister. And in between her panicked sobs, she was gasping for breath. That sound, that awful, desperate rasp of her lungs, it will stay with me forever. When she told me her name, my heart started thumping wildly and I could feel tears welling up behind my eyes. I shouted to the crew to find her mother. Get her in here! Your mommy's coming, I told her. She's on the next boat, don't worry. Where are you from, Amina, my darling? As if I didn't know. And when she told me Damascus, then the tears started to flow. It's okay, little sister, I told her. You're going to be okay. I'm here. We are family, you and me. Dr. Fernando smiled at me, rolling his eyes. Okay, I'm an emotional man. Everyone knows this. If I'm not laughing, I'm crying. Tears come easily to me. Every time we rescue a child, I lose a little piece of my heart. But this time, this little girl came from Syria, my home. When her family came on board, we radioed the nearest hospital and called in the helicopter. I stayed close to her father and Saleh, her little brother. And as we spoke, their accent, their words, I hadn't felt so close to home for a long time. The tears kept coming, emotions rolling over me in waves as big as the swollen sea. Joy to speak to people from home, fear for this little girl who couldn't breathe. Pain of what I had lost and left behind. And this little boy, Saleh, with that brave, wide smile, I felt my heart would break open right there. When the helicopter carrying Amina and her mother took off, I pulled Saleh close to me. He tried to be brave, but the sight of his mother disappearing into the darkness was too much for him, and tears rolled down his cheeks to match my own. As our ship made its way back to port, I spent a lot of time with Saleh and his father. Fadi was still shaken by the terrible sea voyage. When the oxygen had run out, his daughter's damaged lungs could not cope with the wet, cold air. He knew how close to death she had come. Even now that his daughter was being treated and his son was safe, the trauma of that journey, of that decision, haunted him. The risk if you stay, the risk if you go. I remember weighing up the same choice myself. As we talked, I couldn't help but be drawn back to my past, to Syria. I'm not a religious man. My life in Damascus was pretty normal. We'd go to the cinema, the theater, eat in restaurants. My wife was a biologist. I worked for an NGO. My happiest memories were of our summer house in the suburbs. We grew fruit trees, apples, pears, plums. My father would spend his days in the orchard, tending the trees, listening to the children laughing and splashing in the swimming pool. We'd have barbecues under those trees, with the sweet scent of plums lingering in the air. There was always music playing, and I was always the first one dancing. I love to think of those long, hot Syrian nights with my family around me, the smell of meat kebabs smoking on the fire, 
the sound of children laughing. These are the memories I cherish the most. My work was my passion. I worked with refugees, and there were enough of them, even in those days before the war. Mainly Iraqis fleeing violence in their own country. I managed field offices and looked after camps on the border. I worked with people who had lost everything, who had nowhere to go. But I never thought it would happen to me. How could I have been so foolish? The fighting between the regime and the rebels had been going on for some time. There were airstrikes happening all over the city. But I thought our area was safe. I thought I was safe. I was at work when Abdullah called. Sam, Sam, God, you're okay. Have you heard the news? What news? There's always news. Your wife and son, they've left Damascus, right? What? Yes. Last night, uh, they're in Beirut. What's going on? Your apartment. We think it might have been hit. You think? What do you mean, it's been hit? The top floor. I have to go. I have to see. Oh, my God. No. Where? Hey, stop. Where are you going? You can't go there. My house. I, I can't see it. Where? I live here. I have to see my house. Okay, but quickly. You could be back any minute. As I walked down that street, the smoke in the air immediately filled my lungs. And my eyes started burning. There was a vile, a toxic smell. Burning plastic, I think. I could feel lumps of grit crunching in my teeth. I became completely disorientated. I looked up to where the roof should have been, and there were just gaping holes and jagged columns. As I stumbled along the street, I kept tripping on things. Saucepans, shoes, bits of mattress. None of it seemed real. Where was my house? Something caught my eye. A flash of red lying on its side with broken, twisted wheels. A toy train. I picked it up. And I pictured my son. As I'd seen him just two days before, lying on the floor, running that train through the soft cream wool of the carpet, making little choo-choo noises. I looked up and finally made sense of what I was seeing. My son's room had been hit. The roof and half the top floor were gone. Get up, get up. Come on, move, stand up. You've got to get out of here now, now. One day, that's all it took. One day I had a house, the next day I had nothing. If it had happened one day earlier, my wife and son would have been in that apartment. Friends and neighbors died in that attack. Why? Why us? All I owned now were my clothes and my work bag. I was an IDP, internally displaced person. I used this term a hundred times, and now I was one. I had worked with refugees for years, and I thought I cared, thought I understood. I knew nothing. I had no idea of what it does to you, the brutality of what had happened, the evil, the murder. 
It shook me to my core, made me question everything, suspect everyone. I think something broke inside me that day. My family settled in Beirut, but I decided to stay. My work felt more important than ever. I guess it was my way of fighting back. I needed to be part of something good in the world. Damascus was a dangerous place by then. The military were everywhere. And I was born in Homs, enemy territory. I had good reason to be here. I was doing official work. I was helping people. But I was also part of a network distributing supplies to neighborhoods where it was most needed. The regime and I disagreed on which neighborhoods these were, and I knew it was risky, but I couldn't stop. Some of my oldest friends were part of that network. Three had been arrested, two killed. I owed it to them to continue. How could I abandon them? But I miss my family so much. I was relieved that they were safe, that my wife could walk down the street with her head uncovered, that my son wouldn't wake, terrified to the sounds of explosions. But without them, I was lost. I couldn't shake this feeling that something bad was going to happen. I became nervous, paranoid, I guess, and filled with anger, like hot coals in the pit of my stomach, ready to burst into flame. It affected my work, my colleagues. People became nervous around me, fearful of igniting that flame. For six months I lived like this, counting the minutes till I could get a weekend to visit my family. It was my friend Ahmed who warned me. We were drinking in the piano bar in the old town. I often found myself there, too often I guess. Everyone passed through, everyone had lost someone. I love the smell of sweet smoke, thick in the air, the feeling of a cold beer in a warm hand. Gossip ran wild in that small space. Government officials, journalists, humanitarian workers, everyone drank there. Sam, my friend, be careful. They know about you. That man in the interior ministry, he heard about your trips to Yarmouk. He knows you are part of the network. You must stop. Be careful. Avoid the checkpoints. <laughs> avoid the checkpoints? They are all over the city, man. How can I avoid them? I pass three on my way into the office every morning. What am I supposed to do? Six checkpoints. Three on my way into work. Three on my way home. Every day. Past soldiers with a list of names. What could I do? I had to work. I started to dress up in smart clothes, putting on my best shirt and tie and smiling. Always polite. Six times a day. Every day. You're scared to give them your ID. Then you're scared you won't get it back. Every day, dragged out of your car, guns pointed at you, pushed, insulted, threatened. If they take you away from the checkpoint, that's it. You disappear. Everyone knows that. One time someone was shot in their car, right in front of me. 
fear changed me. I, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was a happy, optimistic man. I believed in the humanity of people. I lived to help people. But I saw so much evil. Bad guys. Bad things. I couldn't breathe. In the end, I had to leave. I was falling to pieces. There is a legal term that we use with IDPs to help judge if they should seek asylum. You should determine if their fear is well-founded. I believed my fear was well-founded. My sisters had already gone. One took a boat from Turkey to Greece with her children. now into the boat. Here, put these on over your shoulders. That's it. From Greece, the smugglers arranged for her to fly to Brussels with a man who would pretend to be her husband. Her children travelled separately, by car, with a couple who pretended to be their parents. She had to give her children to complete strangers. Can you imagine... She waited two days to be reunited with them. It's okay, my darlings. Get in. I'll see you very soon, I promise. Come on now, get in. Shut the door. We've got to go. You'll be safe, I promise. They'll look after you. It's going to be all right. I love you. I love you, my darlings. My other sister came through Libya. She took a boat to Italy with her two daughters. A small rubber dinghy. They spent 12 hours at sea. And then the dinghy started to sink. They thought that was it. Hold my hand. That's right, both of you. Come here. My daughters. My beautiful girls. They started to say goodbye to each other. They thought they would die there and then. We are together now. We'll always be together. Try not to be scared. That's right. Come closer. My girls. Thank God they were rescued before they drowned. The eldest, she was a great swimmer back in Syria. We used to call her Little Mermaid. She wanted to be a professional, to go to the Olympics. We all had hopes and dreams. She lost hers in that moment at sea. She'll never go back in the water again. I was the lucky one. I had money. I got a fake passport and flew from Beirut to Stockholm. It took ten months for my legal asylum to go through. Ten months before I saw my wife and son again. That's why I ended up working on a rescue boat. I was a highly paid manager before. I'm just a translator now. But I had to do it. My sister and nieces nearly drowned. I couldn't help them, but if I had the chance to help others, how could I turn it down? And on the boat, I found a new family. Not just the crew and the rescue team, but the people we helped. For me, it's simple. I know how to be with people in crisis. I know what they've been through. I know how to talk to them. 
I love to make people laugh. And I love to get everyone singing and dancing. Especially when the waves were high and the wind was wild. I'd tell the captain to turn the music on. I'd grab one person by the hand and we'd be off. I was on the rescue ship for many months and we helped hundreds of people. But I have to admit, Amina and her family were special to me. Particularly the little boy Saleh. He reminded me so much of my own son. And I can tell you this. My own boy? He saved me. The bad days in Damascus. The months on my own in Sweden. Loneliness and anger were eating away at me. But when my wife and boy joined me, I found myself again. Love for my son brought me back. I saw them once more, Amina's family. In Holland, where they settled. Seeing Saleh's wide smile again filled my heart with joy. His father, Fadi, and I talked for a long time about the choices we made, the choices that haunt us still. We know that. Amina would be dead if they hadn't. My son would have lost his father. But saving a life isn't the end of the story. You've got to go on and live that life. Make it count. And these countries that have taken us in, that have been so generous and given us so much, the truth is, they're not easy to live in. It's so very cold here. You can't sit outside drinking coffee and talking to everyone who walks by. Even if we spoke the language, people don't do that here. They already have their own friends and families. They don't need us. We escaped. We survived. But that's not enough. How do we make our lives meaningful again? Amina's father, Fardi, is a builder. He used to make beautiful facades. He worked all over Syria restoring ancient houses. He wants to go back one day to help rebuild our shattered country. But not everything broken can be mended. Not even in Fardi's skillful hands. My parents stayed in Damascus. The summer house has gone now. My father drove past it recently. All the trees have been destroyed. His beloved orchard, gone. They are both old now. I won't see them again before they die. I know that. I feel the loss every day. What can I do? You can't bring back the life you lost. Anywhere But Home is a six-episode audio drama brought to you by Save the Children. Special thanks to Matasim, Sam, for sharing his amazing story and providing the inspiration behind this episode. To find out more about Matasim and the crisis in Syria, go to www.savethechildren.net forward slash anywhere but home. 
If you'd like to support this podcast and the work of Save the Children, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you. Anywhere But Home was written and created by Alexia Singh. Directed by Alexia Singh. Produced by Natasha Coleman. Sound design, editing, and music by Nikki French. Casting by Merrill and Leslie. Recorded and edited by Nathan at the Blue Studios. Sam was performed by Nick Khan. Ahmed and the Militia Man were played by Basil Abbas. Abdullah and Smuggler 2 were played by Mahmoud El Faitouri. Sisters 1 and 2 by Ahd Kamil and Juliana Yazbek. Smuggler 1 by Richard Peppel. And the Arabic voice was provided by Bashar Akak.